Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Nigel Davey. He's a virtual marketing director for SMEs. Nigel, welcome. Hello. So let's kick off with 60 seconds on your background, please. Okay. So hi, Nigel. I've got a weird and wonderful background going back. We go back to the beginning. I did many, many years in retail, uh, all store based, all customer facing time with that, moved into market research, spent a short period of time digging graves as a, oh, wow. as a slightly different um, D- digging them to different, put in different or job. Um, the very first person I ever dug a grave for is sleeping on his side for eternity. I can fill you in on more details if you want for that. Um, <laughs> I have been, in, been working either in or with small businesses doing their marketing for almost 20 years. Excellent. Okay, well, you've got to tell us about the eternal side sleep. <laughs> so for anyone who's never, never never dug a grave before, what they do is they give you the dimensions of the coffin and you add a few inches on sort of all, all sides. I was told where this plot would be. So I sort of marked it out, started digging down. About a foot down, I hit a, a brick wall. So back in the days, apparently they used to brick line graves to stop grave diggers and grave robbers. So with not many people about, I just sort of naturally just moved across slightly and slid down the side of that wall. About a foot further down, I hit a wall on the other side. Uh-huh. And <laughs> what do I do? So I just carried on down, got down to the requisite seven foot, eight foot, whatever it was, working on the theory of six feet under, although I don't think people are ever actually six foot under. And yeah, so when they went to lower him in, naturally the brick wall got in, <laughs> brick wall on either side got in the way. So they had to turn his coffin sideways and put him in that way. Aha. Okay. Well, I'm pretty sure there's very few of my audience uh, being grave diggers. <laughs> um, maybe a few grave robbers. I don't know. So, Nigel, let's start out with the million dollar question, which is what is the purpose of marketing? The purpose of marketing is. Actually, really quite simple. It's, it's to create awareness and create opportunities for sales. It's to create leads. Okay. So in summary, to help you sell more stuff. Yeah. Right. Okay. So perhaps you can help me answer this question that's been bothering me for the last 35 years. Why is so much marketing total and utter crap? Selfish, talks about themselves, uses nouns to describe what they do instead of verbs. No one's interested in glue. They're interested in how they apply the, and the gluing. So why is it there is so much appalling, atrocious marketing out there that must cost business hundreds of billions a year? I don't work with big businesses. All of my clients are 30 or 40 staff and under. But well, I'm not biggest... sure they're any less guilty if I'm being No, perfect. no, but they're probably more guilty. But the thing that I see and the reason I think for all of this blandness and forgettableness is that people talk about the thing they know most about, and that's themselves. And so they'll talk about their company, they'll talk about the product and what they do and, and all of that type of thing. And they haven't sat down and gone, how does this actually help my customer? How does it help my client? 
what is it? What are the issues, the needs, the problems that my clients have got and my target audience have got? Now let's talk about those and let's talk about how what we sell solves that problem or, or resolves that issue. Because if they do that, it's a lot of it's But doing that means they've got to get into the minds of the customer. They've actually got to talk to the customer to find out if they don't already know. Are, are you and, sure? then, and then convert, and I suppose it's that converting from talking about yourself to talking about other people. Are, are you sure marketing people actually talking to living, breathing customers? I do. I know you do, <laughs> but I, I can count on the fingers of one hand the number of marketers that I've come across who actually think their job is to talk to customers. It baffles me that they don't. There are so many that are stuck convincing themselves that being a data monkey is marketing or being a creative is marketing. Mm. I think one of the big problems, and you see this with sales organizations as well, so the entire revenue operation and leadership are guilty of this, which is they never really sit down and map out the customer's journey. They never really map out the journey of how they get there and what happens after. So if you're going on a trip to McDonald's and you've got your family in the back, the journey begins when one of your kids screams, I'm hungry. And then you all pile in the car and then there's World War III going on in the back. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And your blood's starting to boil. And then you've you're been, queuing You've up. been listening to my car, haven't you? <laughs> it's, I, I don't think your experience is unique. Um, <laughs> and then. You know, you queue up in the drive-through, then they change their mind half a dozen times. So you're confused about the order. Then you try and put it through on a crappy tannoy, and they may or may not speak English. So you know, there's a disconnect or miscommunication. Then the order is potentially wrong. If you have a vegetarian, then it's even worse because you have to faff around waiting for them to bring your food. By the time the food does arrive you don't necessarily want to check it because you just want to get the hell out of there. Then they get their milkshake, spill it all over the car. And by the time you get home, they've got indigestion and tomato K all over in their hair. And then you have to clean up and get rid of the packaging. That's the customer journey. But as far as the McDonald's people are concerned, it's when they turn up, speak through the tannoy, pay and pick up the food. But almost no company that I've ever come across has ever bothered to map out that story. So what, what is it that causes them to be so unaware of the reality of how their customers get there, how they use their products, and what happens after? I think in the McDonald's case, if it's like this or the picture you've just painted, it's not wanting to face the, I suppose, unpleasant realities. Yeah, no, nobody wants to talk about clearing up tomato ketchup. That is the case. And then the more, the more the company can help the customer with the problems they've got, the more likely they are to, to achieve their targets and their sales and, and, and the growth they're looking for. Certainly for companies that I deal with, like I said, the smaller ones, there's sometimes a belief that they know better, which is always a bad thing to be <laughs> and believing. And the other one is there's a belief that it's going to cost lots and lots of money. One, it doesn't cost that much in relative terms. And two, you if you get it right with the marketing messages going forward, you will make up that money very, very quickly. Okay. 
So when we're trying to understand who our customer is, because again, I've seen many organizations that haven't really redefined uh, who their customer is. I came across one recently that hadn't redefined their ideal customer for over 30 years. And their sales have been consistently dropping. Big surprise. What advice would you give to owners and marketing managers in SMEs around really discovering who their ideal customer profile is and what drives them to buy? In terms of mapping out that ideal customer, I suppose the way we do it is don't think of your target audience. Yeah, If you think of a target audience, you're thinking about thousands, if not millions of people. And trying to work out what they want and how you can help them is nigh on impossible. If you think about one person, so the person who makes the decision and what they face and their needs and issues, and and just think about that, in terms of making it as easy as possible for small businesses, what I tend to do is go, who's your best client? Not necessarily the one that gives you the most money, because that client is often really, really demanding, takes up huge amounts of time and may or may not be profitable. But who's your best client? Who's the one you most enjoy working with? Who's the one that takes your advice and actually does what they're told, et cetera, et cetera? Because they're the people you want more of. And if you can map their needs and issues, and part of that is, I suppose, a brainstorm, ideation, whatever the current word is, um, in order to map that, part of it is actually then going to talk to them. And actually, one of the things that we recommend is getting somebody independent to talk to them. Because if you're the business owner talking to your best client, one, you're probably not going to ask the difficult questions, particularly the, what am I doing badly type question. But also, they will often tell you what they think you want to hear. Whereas actually, if you use an independent body to do that questioning, they're generally far more truthful. They will answer the questions. There's no baggage attached to the questions. And so it's, it's a lot easier to get that piece. So really focus on who you really want as a client and work it out, map it out to start with, and then actually go and effectively validate your maps. I think it's also really important that you have the courage to go and speak to unhappy and lapsed customers. And the research that Salesforce did last year is really indicative of this, that your product development cycle will increase in speed by 600% if you go and speak to the unhappy customers. And I think the best advice I ever received was speak to people at the polar ends. So raving fans, find out why they love working with you, what it is that you give them, and then people who are really pissed off. Uh, The ones in the middle, they're often not really that sure. And it takes enormous courage. Matthew Sweezy gave me what I think is the best customer experience survey of all time. And it's three questions, which is, what got you to this moment? Did this experience meet your expectations? And have you seen better? And that third question, you can see people going into palpitations when they ask it, but it is so powerful. And in a sales call, it's really important that salespeople at the end 
ask the question, Did uh, how did I perform in this conversation? Did it meet your expectations and have you seen better? Because they will then tell you about their best buying experience from a salesperson. And I think far too few people invite raw, unfiltered feedback. Absolutely. Yeah, no, nobody likes to be told they're not doing a good job, do they? But you need to know. Absolutely. And what's the price if you don't? It's not going to work, is it? You are going to, one, not win any new clients, and two, probably lose the ones you've got. Absolutely. And again, for anyone who is in any doubt, keeping customers and growing them is more profitable than winning new ones. So let's tackle this issue of the cost of marketing and then juxtapose that with lifetime customer value and what should we be looking to invest to acquire a new customer? Okay. Okay. Um, So what are the costs associated with marketing typically? Costs, costs associated with marketing. Obviously, there is the that strategic planning piece to start with. There is one of the things that we see a lot is people don't actually know what has worked and what has got what hasn't worked up to now. Or do five different social media channels because somebody has told them to, and just in case somebody might you never know one day spot them. This type of thing. So there's a there's a huge sort of cost in, well, not a huge cost, there's a cost in finding out what has and hasn't worked of looking backwards so that you can plan to go forwards. Obviously, there's a, there's a chunk of time. You know, time is, probably, is almost certainly the biggest cost in there because you've got to get stuff done, whether it is generating content, whether it is producing email campaigns, whether it is developing, improving your SEO, whatever it is, it's, it's time that needs to be put into it. And that we've just talked about it's it's, t- it's time talking to customers. Yeah, it's time finding out what is good and what is bad. So that's probably the biggest cost. And then obviously it depends on what marketing channels you you decide to use and the costs associated there, whether it's data lists, pay per click marketing, whatever. I think another area that again people tend to skimp on is research, and certainly from a sales perspective. Failure to research costs you a fortune in drop missed opportunity. Seven out of eight first meetings do not result in a second on average. Now, you've spent money advertising, building your website, paying money on SEO, perhaps pay-per-click advertising, email campaigns. You've had your salespeople phone up and dial. And on average at the moment, in COVID, it's two to three hours for one effective. So two to three hours dial time to get one effective on the basis of an average of 15 manual dials per hour, and on average, 33 dial attempts to get through to a senior decision maker, unless it's a senior decision maker in IT, in which case it's one in 46. 14 effectives to get one meeting. And then they blow it because they haven't done the research, they haven't done the preparation, and marketing and sales are not aligned. So marketing may have gotten to a certain point and sent one message, and then sales turns up with another. And so there's a disconnect. So it's very, very expensive. I mean, if you calculate the cost 
per meeting for a salesperson to leave your office and go and meet a prospect when the restrictions are lifted, you could easily be spending anywhere between 300 and a thousand pounds per meeting just on getting them to leave the office. And if they're on million dollar quotas or million pound quotas, you could easily be losing two to three thousand pounds, maybe even more in opportunity cost. So it doesn't make sense to go in unprepared, unrehearsed, or unresearched. So talk to me about this concept of lifetime customer value. So to me, depending on obviously what what you're selling, is customer lifetime customer value to me is simply what do they spend before they tell you to go away? Mm. And what we often see is that people, one, don't actually know what that is in terms of what the what should their individual clients is, is worth, whether it be as for their biggest clients or whether it's a, as an average. And one of the things that we do see a, a lot, particularly with small businesses, is that they are often heavily weighted, heavily indebted, whatever you want to call it, to, to one or two clients. Mm. So that 80-20 rule type thing absolutely shows up in, in across the sort of small business environment. Uh, and because of that reliance on one or two key clients, the numbers get swayed. But they do need to, they do need to understand that. And then they need to be looking and saying, okay, so if this client is worth to me over the next five years, a hundred thousand pounds. If it costs me five grand to go and get him, then that's not a that's that's a good investment. Yeah, or what whatever the, whatever the numbers are acceptable, depending on profit margins. But people people very very rarely do that, um, and so they don't know what they sh- what it's going to cost in order to meet their business goals. So we 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 plan and go. Okay, what are your business targets? Yeah, where are you now? What do you want to get to? What does that look like in terms of a number of clients and work in numbers backwards? Yeah. How many clients do you need to acquire? How many qualified clients does that mean? How many prospects? How many leads? How much marketing in order to generate those leads? And that gives you a really good picture of actually what you need to invest in terms of marketing and what, what you can generate. A very simply basic, you can look at what you've done over the last year or two. Go, well, I spent that much on that and it generated that number of leads. Right now, if I do twice as much, I should generate twice as many leads. So that the calculations are, are really quite easy to do, but people don't sit down and do them because they're too busy delivering what they've already sold because it's only then that they get paid. And during that time, it's, it's pure on the business rather than, sorry, in the business rather than on the business. Right. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you need to have a good grasp of the financial relationship that you have with your class, uh, with your customer. Absolutely. Uh, you need to know how much they spend on average per order over the, the frequency and what their annual spend is, what their lifetime length is. Is it one year, three years, five years, 10 years? And how much of that falls to the bottom line once you've taken out uh, what it costs you to acquire them and to service them? And then as a percentage of that, you have to be willing to invest that amount in order to acquire customers similar to them. And you need to uh, segment your customers to identify the ones that are genuinely profitable versus the ones that are vanity, hard work, and 
they generate a lot of revenue, uh, but are a pain in the arse and cost you a lot of money. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I think that's about right. Okay. So once you've done those calculations, as a percentage of the lifetime profit from the customer, what would you consider to be a reasonable investment for a business? We work on a, an average of 8 to 10% of turnover as the marketing budget in terms of a good number to work on because it, it ensures that you are maximizing the impact of your marketing. They are seeing you from multiple channels. If, if you work on 2 3 4%, which we, we do sometimes see, you're really limiting what you can do. And so you're, you're just slow, basically slowing things down. Yeah, and, it, and if, your, if your competitors are doing more and better, you're going to lose out. So my, my pal Fraser Haight uh, talks about 30% of lifetime customer value, which I suppose if you net it out with profit, is probably going to be around 8 to 10% of uh, revenue. So uh, again, the challenge here, I think, is that many small business owners really don't have a great handle on their finances, their cost of sale, because they're very fixated on being the technician doing the job. And marketing is often an afterthought and sadly the first thing that gets cut when times are tough. What's your advice to anyone facing difficult times ahead? We're just coming out of a sort of a typical difficult times period, aren't we? And I've been really lucky. None of none of our clients cut cut their marketing activity. If anything, some of them actually increased it. But to me, making noise, let's just call it that in a in a very broad sense of point, is if at all possible, one of the last things you need to cut. Because if you cut it, people stop hearing about you and that they stop seeing your name and your brand and how you help all around them. And at a point where they are able to buy start buying again, they'll have forgotten about you and your competitors will have continued making noise and they'll be the people you remember. So the people that shout longest and loudest are the people that generally win, but the people who keep talking through any downturn are the people that come out the other side. Well, there's a really interesting uh, case study on this, which is Cadbury versus Bourneville. Going into uh, the First World, uh, sorry, Second World War, Bourneville was the number one chocolatier in the country, and Cadbury's was a very poor second. Throughout the Second World War, despite the fact there was no milk, there was no sugar, and there was no cocoa, Cadbury's continued to advertise, and when they come out, came out, Bourneville ended up with a minuscule fraction of the market, and Cadbury's dominated. And uh, I think far too often, we forget that marketing is not just about getting more prospects into the top of the funnel. It's about creating association with your brand. It's about raising awareness. And I, I think very few organizations in the SME space are really very good at building that relationship with their audience. So again, I'm curious uh, in terms of what advice you would give people to really build their presence as expert or go-to in their field? To me, it, it's all about the customer's needs and wants. If they really properly know the needs and issues of their, of their target audience, 
and are able to predict what's coming as things change and then talk about that and talk about the issues and and talking about what success looks like. Yeah, it's the, it's the classic piece, isn't it? We don't buy a quarter-inch drill, we buy a quarter-inch hole. So talk about that end piece and the, and the success because then your brand is being associated with good things, with, the, with, with a win, with the right results, whatever you want to talk about, in order to keep that brand awareness piece going. The other thing that I want to also mention at this point that I think is something that a huge number of small businesses do and you with on the sort of sales side of things will will probably recognize it as well. When the customer says no, they stop marketing to them. And it's a massive, massive mistake. Because just because they said no at that point doesn't mean that they're not going to say no and they're not going to say yes in the future. It's really important to understand because so much marketing is brute force marketing. And the objective is always to try and sell something. But only a tiny percentage of your total addressable market is actually in the market to buy what you have at the moment. The journey they go through, and, and this is uh, illustrated beautifully by Bob Mester in his book, Demand Side Sales, is there are different phases that buyers go through in their buying life cycle. When they realize they have a problem, they make space for it. And when they're making space for it, they start to look passively to try and learn their different options about how they might be able to solve it. Now, if you have a sales training business, for example, you can help people to grow their sales. But so can an advertising agency. So can a well-applied CRM system. So can an outsourced telemarketing company. And th there are various reasons why that customer may be looking to grow their revenues. And they have lots of different options. And so you have direct and indirect competitors. Now, if you are trying to sell to them when they are making space or passively looking, you're just going to be an unwelcome interruption. So in that period, the really important thing is to understand where they are in that um, buying life cycle and deliver timely, contextually relevant and valuable insight and content that allows them, when they move from passive to active looking, where they're exploring their options in detail, to position you as a viable go-to. But you've touched on a really important point, which is that often they will say no to you because they just aren't ready. And you're trying to push them through brute force into the top of your sales funnel. And some are, have already made a purchase and they're happy with what they've got. But the marketing and the sales activity is so fixated on one or two things, whereas you might have a whole portfolio or range of products and services. And because you're not listening to your customer, you're missing out on those on-sell or cross-sell opportunities because you might be able to sell a complementary solution that serves to solve other problems. But very often when a customer is going to market, they don't necessarily understand the full implications of their problem. And as the expert in that field, you should be helping them to realize what's possible. Your thoughts? Absolutely. I suppose a couple of comments. One, when people go to market, 
actually what they go to buy may not be what they want anyway, because they may have not identified actually the root cause of the problem. So helping them to identify that absolutely. With regards to that sort of no piece, the way I dis- describe it, wherever they are in that buying process is the people have got three options when it comes to a sale. They can buy from you, they can buy from somebody else, or they buy from nobody. All three of those, in all three cases, after that no, after after a decision is made, marketing needs to continue. If they buy from you, great. Yeah, but you could, you've then you got that on-sell, upsell, cross-sell piece that you can do because I can guarantee there are almost no companies out there where any of their customers have bought, are buying everything they possibly sell. If they buy from somebody else, yep, you can go into a dark room and swear and curse about them at all you want for a few minutes, but then continue talking to them because at some point in the future, they may realize that actually the company they bought through bought from was the wrong one. And actually, if you've been keeping in touch, then then you can then you get an opportunity to repitch and to potentially win that piece of business. We get quite a bit of business that way. I've just been working now for just over just under a year with a client that I talked to two and a half years ago. Um, they went with somebody else, and then about a year ago they came back to us. So absolutely, keep talking to them. And if they didn't buy from anybody, it means that it wasn't the right time for them to buy. So whether they were not there in the buying cycle. Or for whatever reason, something else became a priority. And so that, that issue wasn't the number one priority for them. So they pushed it back. But again, just keep talking to them, keep marketing to them. So actually, the, because the thing they, you've got to do is make sure that at the point they are ready to buy again, that you're at least one of the three they remember in the sort of classic three tenders type piece. You've, you've touched on something really important for every sales or, and marketing organization to be aware of. Your biggest competitor are not your competitors. It's the status quo. Corporate Visions have done some really interesting research in conjunction with Stanford. And what they've identified, and this was all the data from 300 full CRM systems. So it's a good statistical base. And 60% of buying cycles ended up in the status quo. So no decision, no change. 29.6%, 30%, went to the vendor who disrupted their current preferences. So early on in the sales conversation, having done their research, understanding this, where that customer was likely to be in their life cycle the kind of problems that they were facing, the outcomes that they wanted, was able to destabilize their current preferences and be able to demonstrate the value in the form of a good business case and was able to differentiate from the status quo and other competing products and allayed their anticipated regret and blame, so prospective buyer's remorse. So about 30% went to them. And uh, 10.4% went to an RFP, of which the average win rate was one in four. Again, if you are in that kind of business and you're operating in the belief that an RFP is a good option, that gives you a 2.6% win rate on buy cycles. That's not very good. 
And the expense of an RFP is the third highest hidden cost facing most businesses. Wrong hires is number one. The hidden cost of sale is number two. And the hidden cost of RFPs. And it's really important that your marketing needs to position the thinking so that when the RFP is written and your relationship building, your pipeline nurturing, if you like, has your insights built into the RFP if you want to sway it in your, uh, in your favor. But again, most marketing and sales is tactical. And I don't think there's anywhere near enough strategic thinking. And there certainly isn't enough pipeline nurturing. So I'd love to get your thoughts around what the most effective marketers are doing around that pipeline nurturing. In terms of pipeline nurturing, what are the most effective people doing? Probably the easiest way to describe that is maintaining consistency. It's having that regular communication piece happening, whether that be through regularly producing content, whether that is regular newsletters, whatever the, the marketing channels of choice for their individual target audiences are, that consistency piece is, I think, is key. And then knowing, I suppose, the timescales. So if you were, I suppose it's that classic piece, isn't it, with, with the Christmas market? Yeah. Christmas toy manufacturers produce their ranges in January, yeah, in readiness for the next year, because they know it's going to take that long to, one, get them into the retail chains, and then two, get them in front of, start getting in front of, 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 of mums and dads in August, September time. I remember back to my Sainsbury's days and all the, all the layout changes that started happening the day you got back from your summer holiday, basically. Um, and it was horrible. The seasonal aisle was a wonderful in, invention for supermarket staff. But to me, it's that consistency piece. Yeah, just keep make, make sure that you are doing things, whatever that marketing channel is, on a regular basis because your, your target audience will come to rely on it, come to expect it. If your consistency slips because you've got busy, you're going to start losing people as well, and they're going to they're going to drop out the side of your pipeline. One of the things that I'm seeing a big trend in, well, I'm seeing a trend in, and when done well, is really really powerful. Is by building community and using that. There's a wonderful uh, example in Specsavers. Specsavers were struggling to recruit optometrists in Denmark. And they spoke to all 1,200 um, uh, licensed optometrists in Denmark, and they got seven candidates. And they realized that if they ever had to recruit again, they'd have to go through that whole miserable exercise. So they built a community which was very gently branded as Specsavers, but provided real value to optometrists. So it provided them the latest scientific research. It provided them business advice. It provided them with tools to run their business. And it also was able to advertise jobs and so on. But what was interesting was whenever they needed to recruit after that, everyone, every single uh, optometrist in Denmark knew that Specsavers was a great place to go. They were all familiar with it because they had been offering this regular value 
and creating a community that people found useful, then they were able to nurture their candidate pipeline. And recruitment is no different from any other type of sale. Certainly, it's an area that I'm experimenting with at the moment with my Sales of Force for Good community. I'm finding it really fascinating. I don't know if this is an area that you're in any way familiar with. It's not something that that we're actively doing any of. Having said that, there's somebody that actually might be a potential for a future podcast for you. So an old friend of mine has really started doing some some of this sort of community type work. He works in the designs in the design space. Oh, um, yes, so yeah, I I need to catch up with him and I'll I'll have a chat and then introduce you. <laughs> Thank you. It just strikes me that a lot of traditional marketing, whilst it can still work, there's so much noise out there. I don't know about you. But I'm probably, I've signed up to God knows how many things in order to get their white paper or the tools that they offer or whatever. And then I find my inbox swamped. And so I don't genuinely look forward to any of it. I think there may be two out of a hundred that I've subscribed to that I genuinely look forward to. And even those, because of the volume of noise and how busy I am, most of the good stuff gets filed under, oh, I'll have a look at that later, and I never do. So what I'm curious about is how do you break through when attention spans are limited, time is scarce, and there are so many alternatives and options and shiny things to distract your audience? How do you make sure that people pay attention to your your marketing? (laughs) I'm almost to say, don't know, let me know when you find out. (laughs) (laughs) um, I think it's a quality versus quantity piece. Yeah, there is so much fluff. So many companies will produce content that is related to whatever international day it is. Yeah, how much how much stuff went out on um, a couple of days ago when it was Star Wars Day? You know, may the fourth be with you, and all of this sort of thing. And they they concentrate on making noise for noise' sake, rather than what they put out there is quality. People are going to read, even if it's only putting something new out every couple of months. If it's really good stuff, and it's and it's been one. When you're when you're being more active, being sent to the right people, who it is obviously really really relevant for. But when you're putting it out across social media, as if it's good quality content, then people will will stop and take the time. It's interesting because this whole theme of timeliness, contextual relevance, value, and consistency, those seem to be things that are timeless, but. So much marketing has become marketing morphine. It's this dulling of the senses, you become inured to it, and it's instantly forgettable. And uh, I'm seeing things like handwritten letters having a remarkable effect. Really good storytelling. But again, I think that art has been lost. In the 1950s, Madison Avenue, every agency on there had resident psychologists. 
then they stopped doing that. I'm not quite sure why. I think there was a backlash thinking uh, that people were being duped into buying stuff. But marketing is really a psychological discipline. It seems to have been turned into this um, soulless activity based around data. Um, And very few people really use the data well. I interviewed Martin Lindstrom, who wrote Biology and the Ministry of Common Sense, fabulous book if you haven't read it, about corporate idiocy and the things that they really shouldn't be doing. And uh, he wrote a book called Small Data. And what's interesting about Martin's career, at the age of 12, he reconstructed Legoland in his back garden and started charging people. And his 132nd and 133rd visitor were lawyers from Legoland suing him. They quickly realized that it was pointless suing a 12-year-old, so they hired him instead. And he spends, you know, pre-COVID, he spends about 270, 300 days a year living inside uh, consumers' homes, observing how they interact with their products, speaking to them, and developing product on the basis of how people actually interact and use the products they do have and what they want. Coming back to that point that we made right at the beginning, marketing has to speak to living, breathing human beings, not hide behind data. So in terms of teeing up those conversations and what those conversations, agendas or frameworks need to look like, what would you suggest people do uh, around that? Around talking to customers? Yeah. Um, (laughs) Go and talk to them. Look, if you really, really don't want to talk to them, if you're a marketing person and you really don't want to talk to them, talk to the people that are talking to them. If it's in consumer, go and talk to the, the retail staff. Go and talk to the, the people on the front line. Talk to the salespeople. There is always that classic sales and marketing never talk to each other. But if they did, life would be so much easier, wouldn't it? Um, because... There's always this blame game. Yeah, we don't hit our numbers, so it's got to be, it can't be our fault. It's got to be somebody else's fault. But I think there is no substitute for, for actually talking to people. You can get all the data you want from Google Analytics to Hotjar and everything else that you want. But actually, the, the online piece may or may not be different. Politics today really sort of, sh- and things show show the difference between what people will say to your face and what they'll say online. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a big difference in that. And what people will put in a survey and what people will say when you talk to them is often going to be different. What the data says and what actually is happening in someone's head are not always the same. So yes, the data is extremely useful. You can measure the numbers, you can see the performance, but in order to make sure that you've got the right messages in the first place, you've got to talk to people. Conversation that gives you the insight. I was at a dinner with Forrester Christmas before last, and their head of big data was talking. And he said that only 7% of corporations are using the big data well. So lots of organizations are collecting bucket loads of information, but they're swamped and they don't know where to look to ask the right questions. And that's, I think, one of the most important bits of output from speaking to real life human beings. And getting the unfiltered information back from them is really key. 
which is why Nigel's point about using an external third party is incredibly helpful. What I'm also seeing is so many organizations spend a lot of money just doubling down on the brute force with the mindset that more is better. When we look at the effectiveness of digital advertising, for example, the research on this is truly depressing. Google advertising averages a 1.91% engagement level with adverts that get one click or more, then 1.61% on Facebook. And those nasty stalker adverts that follow you around get a 0.035% engagement rate, according to Gap in the Matrix. Now, when you look at that, that's an awful lot of really pissed off people because that equates to 4,000 billion adverts that are served up to you and I every year to get one click or none. Now, lining the pockets of Facebook and Google, obviously they're charities and they need the money. It just doesn't seem to compute. I know it works for some people. How do you make sure that when you do spend on advertising in the digital space that you get a good return on your investment? Because certainly every campaign I've ever tried to run has fallen horrifically flat. And I, I don't think I'm unusual. The advertising can work. If I if I go back to a previous client or oh, previous company I used to work for, we rode the Google AdWords wave very early on, back when IT support London was 10, 20 pence a click. It's about <laughs> eight or nine quid a click probably now. That's I haven't looked for a while. <laughs> but we spent £130,000 over a five-year period those clients spent with us for 4.2, 4.3 million pounds. Wow. So the return on investment from that was phenomenally good. But we stopped doing it when IT Support Manchester, because we'd opened a Northwest office, was 20 quid a click. You simply have to watch the numbers. Yeah, you can see the return on investment. You can see, obviously, you pay per click for this particular, for, for Google Ads, you pay per click, you see the traffic, you see you can see what traffic converts into leads, you can see what leads converts into sales. When those numbers start to drop, that return on investment number starts to drop, then you need to pull in your wallet, whatever you however you want to describe it. If you don't watch the numbers and watch how they change on a relatively regular basis, you're going to end up getting stung by continuing doing the things that you've always done. Yeah, it's that definition of madness, isn't it? doing the same things and expecting different results. That then leads on to the kind of blind spots that small business owners and their marketing teams have around marketing. What are the common blind spots you see people suffer from? I suppose the blind spots we see is that you've got to do social media because if you don't do social media, you're never going to get seen type thing. Whereas if you've got a target... Let me use an example. We did some work for an e-commerce company a few years back. They were running competitions on Facebook. Yeah, winner, insert product. And these products retailed at around 1,500 quid. So they were costing them, I don't know, five, 600 quid a pop. And they would get loads of people entering the competition, the usual share and like type thing. 
But when you looked at the numbers, less than 1% of their sales came through Facebook. And so we're going, why, why are you doing this? Why are you spending a lot of money chasing sales through, through that particular channel? And their social media person went, oh, because it's brand awareness. I'm going, is it? Really? And so we'd, we'd just done a demographic survey on, on their actual customers and their, and their customers were generally middle-aged men in, in suburban and rural areas. We ran exactly the same survey, literally copied and pasted and ran it, ran it on Facebook. And the typical Facebook follower was a middle-aged woman in an urban location with a small garden. <laughs> if, you're buying car, if you're buying tractor mowers, or if you're entering a competition for a tractor mower, you're not using it. You're sticking it on eBay. All of their interaction from that particular channel was coming from professional comp- competition junkies. And so it is about, again, it's about making sure you're using the right channels and not doing it just because you think you should. Sounds because everybody else is. Yeah, if you don't, you don't know what everyone else's results are, 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 are what they're achieving... So don't just blindly copy them. Yeah, try it, experimenting with it, experiment with it. Make sure that actually whatever you're using is actually delivering that return on investment that you need to. It's really interesting. I'm working with a fintech in the open banking space. So these guys offer instant cash back, which is really interesting from a psychological perspective. Because even if you only get 17 pence back from Starbucks, you get it before you've actually stepped foot out of the, um, the Starbucks shop. And so it gives them a little dopamine hit. But what's really interesting, because certainly Apple, uh, the EU, California, they're all uh, really clamping down on third-party data and uh, pixels that follow you around And so the voluntary first-party data on actual spending habits is incredibly insightful and valuable for retailers because it can tell you how much each person has spent. Now, they don't get that granular detail. The the, uh, fintech hangs on to that. But they can tell the retailer how many customers in Hartlepool bought from them versus buying from Costa Coffee or you know, co-op versus Tesco Metro, and how frequently they bought. Did they buy their coffee uh, on the train line going from Petersfield to, to London? Uh, and that level of insight now is available. And I think more and more people need to start asking about innovative ways that data can be used uh, in order to get actual behavioral insight into um, what customer spending behavior looks like rather than intent data because uh, i hear a lot talked about intent data but in my experience it's not terribly accurate am i being unfair saying i will buy versus seeing what i have bought yeah i think examples of that you can go back 20 30 years for for other examples of that can't you look when what was it was it john or david sainsbury said that Tesco's club card was the, the sort of equivalent of green shield stamps. A few years later, they were they were eating their words as Tesco took over as the number one supermarket. So, and that was all about actual proper data about who was buying what and where. It is absolutely vital, and I agree with you that 
the companies that are using the data. So, and you talked about coffee shops, and I can't remember. So, which so I think Starbucks and Costa have got digital versions, and then Nero still had the the card with the ten stamps on it. Yeah. I'm just going, why why are they doing this? They're, they're losing out on so much data opportunity there. In the B2B space, it's a little bit different because obviously it's a, it's a different buying process. It's a different requirement type thing. But you do need to understand actual usage rather than, like you said, commit, sort of affinity to buy. Okay, I just uh, spotted the time. We've come to the top of the hour. This has been really fascinating. Thank you. No, um, thank you. Tell me this. You've got a golden ticket. and You can go back and you can advise the idiot Nigel, age 23. What choice bit of advice would you uh, give him that he would have probably ignored, but would have been valuable? Um, <laughs> this one will sound strange, but the first one I, I sort of, when I thought about this was get out. That's purely a personal one. I was in a very toxic relationship back then um, <laughs> that last that lasted far longer than it should have done. So, um, so that was that one. And push yourself. I, I did. I think apart from the toxic relationship, I was relatively comfortable. At the time, and so I didn't really push myself, particularly when it comes to things like technology. Yeah, back in school, I just, for whatever reason, I could not understand how computers could make robotic arms move and all this sort of stuff. So I just ignored technology. And yes, I could well have been caught up in the dot-com boom and suffered from all of that. But actually pushing myself and, go, and looking at the, tech, that sort of the technology industry far earlier than I did would probably be the things, apart from get out of that relationship, mm-hmm. uh, the things I would have said to my 23-year-old. Okay. What, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? The biggest or the most priority thing on my list at the moment is the impact our about-to-arrive dog is going to have on our, on our life. Oh. So, so that's going to be fun and games. And, and we've been told to buy lots of slippers. So they chew those up in, on a slightly more serious note, it's about capacity planning for me at the moment. Um, I am, whilst I can always take on more work, it's about making sure that I'm delivering that in a way that works for, for SME needs, obviously works for our clients and, and, and works for everyone else that's involved. So it's a capacity planning piece and a delivery piece at the moment. Have you identified any tools to help you with that? It's not a tool. It's a skill set piece. For me, it's a skill set and, and people piece. So we are, we're very open and transparent with our clients that the way we run their marketing is by bringing in the right people and bringing in the right skill sets. Because yes, as I mentioned, I can do talk Google AdWords and, and that type of thing. We're a MailChimp partner, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a lot of other things that we need to get done for people that it doesn't make sense for us to try and do. So we bring in the skill sets on those. And then it's about, off right now, it's often about just the little bits. Yeah, it's about getting edits to people's websites done in a cost-effective way and, and just silly little things like that. But there's lots of different skill sets involved with that. So it's, I'm, I'm sort of trying to work out the best way of, of delivering that in a in a way that makes sense. Excellent. What are you watching, reading, listening to at the moment that you rate? I'm actually reading one of the books that you mentioned in one of your previous podcasts. So Marketing Rebellion by Mark Schaefer. Oh, fabulous book. 
I'm very early stages of it, but it all makes it all makes a lot of sense. I'm not religiously, but whenever I catch one through whatever social channel, all the sort of stuff Simon Sinek produces makes a huge amount of sense to me. Particularly that his, I suppose, his core start with why philosophy. And I think I'm probably listening to far too much James O'Brien on LBC at the moment. Uh, but that's probably that's probably more a political affiliation piece than anything else. I think you'll, if you're not following him, Colin Shaw has a great blog on LinkedIn. His company is Beyond Philosophy, and he's a customer success specialist. Uh, but it's all about listening to the customer, and I think the whole piece around marketing sales and customer success alignment is really key. Matthew Sweezy's book, The Context Marketing Revolution, is also a fantastic read and some really interesting insights in there. But yeah, Colin Shaw's brilliant. Love, love, love his stuff. Excellent. Nigel, how can people get hold of you? Easiest ways, email, website, phone number. So smeneeds.co.uk is the website nigel.davey, D-A-V-E-Y, at smeneeds.co.uk for email and 020-8634-5911 is our switchboard. Nigel Davey, thank you. Thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've found this conversation useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And feel free to go to Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts Scroll down below the fold and find the bit where it says leave a review and leave an honest review. I'm perfectly happy with a one-star review as long as it's honest. Three stars, five stars, and they're also welcome. Now, if you're the owner or uh, CEO of a tech company in the 10 to 50 million revenue range and you want to grow your business and achieve real, sustainable, profitable hypergrowth, with highly engaged and highly productive employees throughout your entire revenue operations, marketing, sales, customer success, account growth, and you want customers who stick with you year after year, decade after decade, then let's schedule time for a brief conversation. My email is marcus at laughs-last.com, or you can direct message me on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.